This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Which you know good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, that's me, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Again, you should know that Christopher Butler is running a race. He's running for Congress in the 1st District of Illinois, so he's not going to be with us today. But I do have some guests with me that I think you'll really enjoy. The first one is... I mean, the closest thing you can get to a founder of the Ann campaign, uh, Corey Porter has been with the Ann campaign from the beginning. She's on our executive committee. She's been working with our uh, whole life project. Just somebody that I really appreciate, a sister of mine. Corey Porter, how are you doing today? Oh, that was a that was an intro, man. I love that. <laughs> I'm doing good. It's good to be here, Jess. Good stuff. Good stuff. Now, this is a brother who's become more familiar. He's been on here a couple of times. He was on here last week or the week before, something like that. Uh, John Richards, y'all know him. He's a Morehouse man. He went to uh, law school at Howard University. So that makes him a social engineer for Christ, a brother who is very deep, very, very biblical, man. And we just appreciate him being on this podcast. My brother, John, how are you feeling, bro? Good, man. Good to be here again, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, So look, I don't know if y'all been like me, but ever since Roe has been overturned within this last week, it has been very tense. I mean, if I read y'all some of the folks that have been in my DMs, uh, my timeline, it's just been crazy and nobody's listening to each other. Corey, have you had any, have you, have you experienced that tension? Yeah. Um, Oddly enough, I didn't um, have a chance to really sit with social media this weekend by God's sovereignty. It's the only thing I can call it. My phone kind of started spazzing and broke out. Um, So I wasn't able to look on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or any of those things. Um, Instead, what I was able to do um, was to drive around D.C., go down to the Capitol to pray and just look at people and and look at to see how are they receiving the information. And obviously by then, um, again, the day it hit on Friday, what you saw with women already starting to come out, police um, starting to be heavier in the streets to the anticipation of what was about to occur in the protest. Um, but also you just, I think, you know, anecdotally what I felt like I experienced was just a real sense of grief and lament um, mixed with a lot of anger from a lot of women. Um, and then when I was able to pop back on social a bit um, at the start of this week, um, my EA, Darren, was saying how, you know, his experience was that much of the church online, particularly through Facebook, is just cannibalizing itself. Um, pastors talking crazy to parishioners, parishioners talking crazy to pastors, uh, people deleting comments, um, coming at each other left and right. And so I think it's a difficult um, and, it, like you said, chaotic and crazy experience that people are having right now. Yeah, it's unfortunate, John. What, what's been your experience with it? Yeah, something similar. I, you know, I lead a justice-oriented organization in Georgia, and many of our members have been lamenting in the group me in the chat, also on social media. So we we had a team meeting yesterday, gave them some space and place to be able to process some of that. So certainly feeling that, but also, you know, in my position here in Little Rock as a church leader, just seeing the divergent views, even with our own congregation, you just kind of see the tension there, even with the folks who are um, doing life with you in church together. So certainly is something that I felt on both of those ends as well. Yeah. And the thing that's gotten me is really not even just, you know, for one, being surprised on people's positions a little bit sometimes. I mean, I know we're all uh, we we all for the sanctity of life, 
But some of the stuff I've seen from clergy too, man, I've just seen some commentary that's been like, bro, you you really should have left that in in, the, in your drafts, dog. Like that 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 did not need to come out because that didn't come out right. It doesn't make sense, and most importantly, it's not biblical. And so that's really one of the things that's gotten to me, and it, and almost been painful to kind of watch some of the back and forth. You have folks who have this triumphalism, yeah, we just won. And it's like, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's like, man, this, the way that some of us are handling this just isn't healthy. And, and so hopefully we can see some improvement, but we got a lot of stuff to talk about today. I'm trying to, going to try to make sure that this episode isn't too long, but we may go a little long just because there's so much to talk about. So y'all know what it is. As always, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, uh, the Fetzer Institute for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Appreciate that partnership, but it's time to get to it. So grab your Bible. Get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Let's start with this. Mississippi's Gestational Age Act says this, except in a medical emergency or in the case of severe fetal abnormality, a person shall not intentionally or knowingly perform or induce an abortion of an unborn human being If the probable gestational age of the human of the unborn human being has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks. So without certain exceptions, you cannot have the the law said in Mississippi that you cannot have an abortion after 15 weeks. That's the legislation that was in question in the Dobbs case that overturned Roe versus Wade. This legislation was challenged by uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is an abortion clinic. They said that the law violated the constitutional right to to an abortion established by Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Well, the two lower courts agreed. So the initial court they go into and then the appellate court agreed with them. The state of Mississippi argued that Roe and Casey, those two cases, were wrongly decided and that the act was constitutional. Well, we saw last week that Justice Alito, in his opinion, he agreed. The Supreme Court held that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. The authority to regulate abortion was then returned to the states. But let me correct one thing, because this is one of the things I was saying out there, too. The court did not say abortion was illegal. That's not what they did. I want to be very clear about that. It goes to the states to make that decision. Now, the practical effect of that is that some states may very well likely have a ban or very limited access. But if you read the holding of the case, it does not say abortion is illegal. It says that there is no constitutional right. Therefore, basically, the states get to regulate it and make the decision. Anything to add to that as far as the legal side of that conversation, uh, John? Yeah, I think it's also important that the court use this standard of what is considered legal or judicial neutrality. In other words, saying that where the Constitution is silent, so is the court. So Alito went to far ends to make sure that um, his opinion itself articulated that the Constitution said nothing about abortion itself. Therefore, um, don't want to be a quote unquote activist court, as people say. And we want to make sure that we return the power to the people in the states so that the court's not making law. I think that's one of the clear things that he wanted to get through in his opinion, just looking at the history and tradition, uh, which is the standard for the 14th Amendment that he decided and the court decided that it was going to allow um, the Constitution to be silent on abortion, which he said it does, and then allow the states themselves to be able to actually create law um, the way they should uh, to be able to create your law around abortion rights. Yeah, because he went in a little bit about when he was exam or analyzing Roe or critiquing Roe about how it almost sounded like legislation. Like this is something that the legislature is supposed to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's saying the places that you thought you could derive this constitutional right don't allow you to do that based on other presidents and and, and so on. So it is a um, it's worth reading, guys. I know I know not all of you are legal (laughs) scholars, but it is worth kind of going through the argument because I think it is accessible. There may be certain terms you might not understand, but it it is worth going through, especially if you're going to be on social media and out in these streets 
going back and forth. Any anything else to add to that, John? Yeah, I think that uh, people also need to be aware that the real standard was a, a trimester based standard that the court themselves came up with saying that after the second trimester, uh, then uh, you could impose some type of limitations on it. So it had come up with this standard in row and then it became kind of a, a viability standard. Like when is the fetus or the person viable in those instances? So the court just decided they didn't want to go into those murky waters uh, and decided to let to let the state legislatures actually work through those issues. Now, one of the things that I did find interesting is that the other side, the dissent, actually said, hey, we have two cases that have decided this already. In legal terms, it's called stare decisis, let the decision stand, right? So we as a court aren't supposed to overturn this long-standing law that's been around for 50 years. And Alito kind of got petty a little bit in his response in the majority opinion. And he said, well, uh, Plessy was 50 years before Brown, and we overturned Plessy, which Plessy versus Ferguson was a separate birth but equal doctrine, which Brown versus Board of Education overturned um, in the realm of education. So that conversation around stare decisis let the decision stand. The court generally allows precedent to take place, but there are times where they have to revisit conversations, and this is one of the times when they decide to do it around abortion. Yeah, and Cornyn, Senator Cornyn from Texas mentioned that. Uh, in response to an Obama tweet. And that got people, I guess people thought he was saying that he he wanted to go back and overturn uh, Brown versus Board of Education. So that became a, a huge thing. It, I mean, all this stuff has been out of control, but 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 enough lawyer talk. All right. We got enough lawyer talk. I want to get just general reactions. I mean, Corey, obviously you as a sister have your own view of, of, of this case. And I just want to get, get an understanding from your perspective of your reaction when you heard that Roe versus Wade had been overturned, even though it didn't mean that, you know, abortion was illegal. What was your initial kind of reaction? Yeah, man, my reaction to Roe being overturned. Um, I mean, even with the Scottish, the Scottish decision um, being leaked, I, I, I was still in disbelief. I mean, once I got past, though, I think the initial shock, there was a rush of emotions that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I deeply believe in the sanctity of human life. And I am so thankful now that these young lives will have the chance to live. Um, And at the same time, uh, my feelings are also a bit uneasy um, not to see to see this decision and not to see substantive government or social programs come into place to help the mother, to help the woman. So as someone, again, who deeply cares not only for the life of the child, but also for the women, it's undeniable that the reality that many of these children we birth into and the families who will have to endure will be under social and economic hardship. These children will be born into circumstances where the odds are stacked against them and their family, and and it's just going to be harder to see them thrive. So yeah, I think I, I think my reaction was, yeah, again, um, it was, I was happy. I was elated, but I was also, you know, struck with a bit of anxiety. So basically if I'm, if I'm taking you right, you felt like this is, Roe was wrong. This is, this is good, but that doesn't end the conversation. Yeah. Right? This is an ongoing conversation. Yeah. And what kind of things do you think are needed to put women and children in a better situation? Like what, what are some of your concerns that are that things that are not there that should be there if we want this to be a place where women don't want don't see abortion as their best option? Yeah, I mean, I'm most concerned. Um, I'm most concerned about women and in particular uh, black women. We all know that the percentage um, of those who are having abortions are disproportionately in communities of color. But but I do want to say this, though, like, you know, regardless of what the news cycles may tell us, these women should not be held necessarily so quickly to moral judgment, right? I mean, black women are never quickly as seen as human as someone who is capable of vulnerability and someone who's capable of fear. And so the question should be when you see black women making this choice, not indictment of her or persecution of her, but it should be why would a mother want to kill the most innocent part of herself, right? So because black women are human, 
why are they having more abortions than any other racial demographic? And I believe the answer is addition to the is honestly found in the the, the structural violence of racism that's committed against the black community over decades. It's left us less the least educated, the least resource, um, and the least whole. And when I say by least, you know, educated, of course, like the most rising demographic of people who are educated are black women, but that is just recent. We haven't even got a chance to get on our feet yet. So I think it's hard to say that now the woman is also supposed to take a dependent when she's just now getting to a place of, um, of stability. Um, I think it's that we need to care for the woman to be able to, to allow for her and her child to be able to thrive. Um, and, and, and lastly, I, again, I'm concerned about the, the messaging that women are hearing that, this messaging, I believe, is that, you know, abortion is health care versus what about the messaging of you're pregnant and let's make sure you have the ability to have economic means of prosperity so that you can keep your child. That messaging is not even on the table. It's just what's being taken away from her, which is the federal protection. I mean, again, I, I want to reemphasize um, because I think in this time and space, we I got to reemphasize that, you know, I stand in my own conviction as well as alongside of us at the end campaign to say that, you know, my my assessment that is that Roe is a poorly written law. And so it, it most definitely needs to be overturned and that overturn is welcome. Um, and it will allow I will say this, it will allow for opportunities for uh, for us to advocate and push for be- better policies and laws that can address the pending pregnancy crises. Um and as you were saying, like what social programs should be on the table, I think all of them should be on the table um, to be reassessed in light of this decision. So granted, there are certainly ineffective and bad ways to enhance like the social net. So I'm not necessarily calling for that. But I'm saying that because of this decision now being here, I think the country needs to be ready to move forward in a thoughtful way. So part of the solution could be modifying some of the programs that we already have to increase funding, both in education and financial relief, um, to demand early education, food assistance, child care relief. I mean, yeah. And then, you know, something that we're not really trying to address as quickly, but I think needs to be on the table because the reality of the situation that it puts the mom in is that there's just going to be the reality that there's going to be a rise in services like domestic abuse centers. You know, do we have funding for that foster care, um, low income housing? I just think we need to be very comprehensive and call for us to relook at the programs and the safety, safety, um, social safety nets that we have in place. Right. Because we know so many women say they make that decision because they can't financially provide for the child. Right. So we know that doesn't mean we think it's right, but it's something we have to take in consideration. John, what was your reaction? Well, I think that um, like Corey, I was. Um, happy with the decision itself uh, as someone who uh, is a whole life advocate and does does think that uh, fetus, even the fetus has rights to life. Uh, on that same note, though, I did feel like, especially in the broader evangelical community, that this issue is more of a matter of convenience than it is conviction. And so let me explain that from a historical perspective, in the 70s, prior to Roe, the evangelical community was largely silent on the issue of abortion. It was a Catholic issue. As a matter of fact, W.A. Criswell, who was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and a leading evangelical voice, after the Roe decision, he said that he felt like he sided with the justices and he thought it was a good decision. Didn't preach his first anti-abortion sermon until about six years later. And this happened in light of the politicization of abortion. Uh, They saw an Iowa primary where a Catholic uh, person running for Republican office made abortion a primary issue and that person won. So it became a convenience for them politically as opposed to a conviction for them spiritually. And so my concern is, now that they've got, we've gotten Roe overturned, it isn't going to allow them to be feet on the ground where the gospel is seen in action now, where we are able to support pregnancy crisis centers, prenatal care, things of that nature that help move towards that whole life narrative because they've gotten the political end that they've got that they were set out to do. And that's what worried me too, man. It's just like, 
again, all the triumphalism, all that stuff. Yeah, we won, we won, we won. And you're like, there's so much work to do. There's so many people that are hurting. I get why you want. We, 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 we agree that Roe wasn't great. But can we say that this, the celebrate, you know, the, the level of celebration you have need to be tempered by actually what's going on and how much more work has to be done? I just I just didn't see that. And for me, it was just it was hard to stomach at times. Um, it, it, it's just tough, man. There's, there's so much going on, so much to say. But let us take a break and we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. I'm here with Corey Porter and my man, John Richards. And we are talking about the Dobbs case, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, all that good stuff. And I know you didn't think you're going to get away from the Church Politics Podcast without a monologue. This one will be shorter, but I think it's important. So so hear me out. One of the first things that you'll hear um, a lot of pro-choice people say is they, being everyone who's pro-life. They don't care about children. And I hear that. And to be honest with you, I used to, to some extent, believe it. But I do think the truth is more complicated. I've I've never really been part of the pro-life movement per se. Uh, that's not my circle. But as the and campaign talked about pro-life issues, I've met some very sincere people in that movement. I'm talking about the people that you that, you know, who have adopted and fostered multiple kids for decades. I'm talking about people who left lucrative jobs to counsel and support women, people who give themselves not because there's anything fashionable or glamorous about it. Most of them will never win any type of award or get any special recognition. They do it because they sincerely believe the unborn are living human beings and it's God's will for them to advocate for the recognition of their human dignity. I personally would be dishonest. I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that there's a fairly large group in the pro-life movement proper who feel that way. Now, they're not probably not going to be interviewed by MSNBC, uh, but they do exist. That said, and this kind of goes, I think, harkens back to uh, what John was saying. Unfortunately, there's another group that's also part of the pro-life movement. Uh, They're often the loudest. They frequently find their way to the spotlight and onto the cameras. These are the pro-life people who took the overturning of Roe as an opportunity to own the libs, to rub it in, to troll on social media and scoff triumphantly at those who were upset about the verdict. If I didn't know better, I'd think that they were more excited about the political win than they were concerned about the moral behind the issue. Based on their behavior, One might think that this is mostly about scoring points in a never ending culture war and not really about babies. These are the people who say they care about life. Unless it takes one cent out of their pockets. They sell wolf tickets about life, but aren't willing to sacrifice anything from what I can tell. Aren't willing to humble themselves to engage the issue with a broken heart rather than with a spirit of rivalry and belligerence. And from what I can tell, they don't even realize they've become characters. They don't seem to realize that they've become the perfect foil for the relatively small group on the far left that has no regard whatsoever for life. You see, in my opinion, and folks might disagree with me, in my opinion, I think most pro-choice people I've met do care about babies. We have our disagreement, but they do care. But there's a wicked minority that don't care at all on the left. And they can hide their motives and hide their intentions behind this clown show on the right. The sickest people on the left don't have to articulate a sound argument. 
All they have to do is point to the meanness, hubris, and power-hungry antics of some pro-lifers to convince everyday Americans that the pro-life movement is fraudulent. The folks going around bragging and boasting right now are the greatest asset to the pro-choice movement, and they don't even see it. They've left a stain on the cause. And so many people who might be persuadable, so many people who might otherwise be pro-life, don't do it because they don't want to associate with these nasty, mean political hacks. And the damage, again, that they've done to the cause. So many people who don't even listen to the legitimate arguments when it comes to pro, pro-life, it's because they see the meanness They see the ignoring of other issues coming from these folks who are now uh, so ecstatic. And I'm not saying you can't be excited about it, but are so ecstatic and so ready to throw this in other people's faces. We've got to do better than that. And I think that's a major problem that could very well. End up hurting the cause altogether, because this isn't a debate that is over. One of the things that other things that I noticed, Corey is that a lot of people are making an effort to make this about purely about race. If you are black, the position is to be pro-choice. I think that's a historical, I think that's just completely inaccurate. Sure, there are pro-choice black people. We're not a monolith. But to act like that's a historical position, especially for black Christians, is just a historical. It doesn't make any sense. And there are a lot of people may not know the racist origins of abortion and people like Margaret Sanger who who were who were talking about it. Can you speak into that, Corey, just that conversation and some of the things that even Margaret Margaret Sanger might have said? Yeah, let me start with one of her quotes Um, in 1923. um, She was quoted in uh, and going to a KKK um, women's meeting rally and she said the following words. How are we to breed a race of human thoroughbreds unless we follow the same plan? We must make this country into a garden of children instead of a disorderly backlot of overrun with human weeds. And I want to emphasize the human weeds because she'll pick back up on that language of human weeds and it was tied to people of color. It means, she says, Margaret Sanger, the release and cultivation of the better racial elements in our society and the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual exportation of defective stocks, those human weeds which are threatening the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Now, I just want to be clear, some debunk that while she said this, that she didn't necessarily say black or brown people. However, the context of her being in a KKK women's meeting, who else would she have been talking about? Um, she was not talking about Eastern European women's of the immigration inner city that she worked in in the Upper East Side of, Brook, of, of New York. She was talking about the black and brown people that look like you and I who would be seen as human weeds, those who would not allow America to come into the finest of flowers or American civilization. And so when I see language like this, which, again, Margaret Sanger being tied to the, um, you know, the contraceptive movement, but also to Planned Parenthood, which is a place that um, allows for and, and facilitates abortions. And so what I'm most fearful here is that black women would assume that abortion is something that is for them. But in its inception, it was something that was made in order to to take away life from them, to take away their ability to flourish. They weren't even seen to be a part of the American society that would flourish. And so I just want to make sure that the same energy we put toward when we see scripture and they say that, oh, we, we reject Christianity because it's the white man's religion, because in their understanding, Christianity started in the throes of America versus its ancient civilization beginnings in, in Europe. It's like, no, America was um, Christianity was already in Africa. We have the flourishing of our society prior to it coming over in the enslavement. But you reject Christianity in America purely because it's linked to slavery and to denigration of your community. Okay, but when abortion is linked to the degradation of your community and linked to you not being able to thrive, it's like, oh, well, it's not convenient to have that narrative. So, again, I know, again, many people may push back against whether or not her words were meant toward specifically black women and black babies. But it's it's 
is right there in the historical documents and in the in the transcripts brought over by the KKK um, that we see that that language that she's using is not language that is flourishing for black women. That's a word. Context matters. Context matters. We know what she's trying to get. And, and you make a good point because what we what we don't do with the end campaign, we're not shaming any sisters who've, who've gone through this, who are considering it. I mean, at all. And uh, we care for you. We, we you know, we, we want to you know wrap our arms around you and be helpful and advocate for you. But the other thing that I would say, especially for brothers and sisters who are pushing this as the black side of the issue is. Do you not have any suspicion like are you not suspicious at all of people outside of your community who are so eager to allow you to abort your children like that that zealousness about aborting black children should make you feel some kind of way right um you i mean we have quotes from mother Teresa. we have most quotes from a lot fanny lou hamer on and on these folks wasn't following behind white evangelicals right they, they had their own ethos Right. And it was a Christian ethos. Uh, but but John, speaking to this for us, man, what, what is your thought just on this? Be- folks trying to make this the black way to think about it, the pro-choice side. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction. And I'm glad that Corey brought up the historical reality with Sanger and urban um, centers where Planned Parenthood is very prominent, because I think we're asking the wrong questions of pro-choice people. I think we need to begin with the question of why is it that these women seek abortions and address that issue, address those issues very specifically. Because when we hear pro-choice, we hear different things without understanding the context around why one, one person makes a choice over another. I think it's important for us as a body of believers to be able to not close these facilities, but make them unnecessary. So make their lobbies empty, make their tables empty because of the resources that we provide these folks. Like I would pray that the day comes that we are a people that realize that just because a place is open doesn't mean that people utilize it. So my approach would be, and our approach should be when we're talking to folks who are pro-choice, to change the conversation. Like, why is this necessary for you? And how can we come alongside you and support it? Guess what? That is the Christian practice that has been happening since the first century. Look at the church in Acts, sharing all things in common. You see first century practices of people throwing away babies in the first century and Christians going out into the wilderness and caring for those babies. Like, we need to be able to adopt those practices to center ourselves around what it looks like to be a community of faith who really cares about those who are around us and not ask the talking point questions that we ask around pro-life and pro-choice. No, that's good. Anything to add to that, Corey? Wow. Wow. John, that was good. Um, That was so good because you responded with such a priestly word that is so needed in this moment. I'm just so glad to see brothers like you and Justin who are not tied to identity politics, um, who are actually tied to and committed to the way, the third way, the way of the gospel, which sees the woman as well. Right. And so I think when we look at an issue of cultural war in our world, we lose out on that priestly manner is when we're so steeped in our own ideological frameworks or our own opinions and our own vacuum chambers. Um, and that's just not the way in which Christ showed up. You know, I'm thinking about the woman caught in the act of adultery um, and Christ did not condemn her. You know, instead he protected her and then showed her a better way. And I think that's the response that the church should have is that we should be those who come alongside women when they are weeping and suffering and seeing lament, like I did with women who were riding when I was riding around uh, DC, seeing these women, my heart reached out, my, my heart responded in that, right? I didn't just look at those women. It was like, oh, she should get over it. It was like, no, like there's a legitimate concern and fear here and I want to enter in. And that was only the spirit in me. That wasn't Corey. That was God responding to his own. And so I just think, I just, I just want to amen what John was saying. I just think it's such a priestly demeanor that, that we should have in this moment as a church. 
Very, man, so many important points right there. We've got to see the life, right? You've got to see the life. And John mentioned the catchphrases and all that. And and I would just say this to add to what both of y'all were saying. Can we please stop basing our arguments in this debate on cliches and catchphrases? We've got to stop that. It's deeper than that. Her body, her choice is clever, but it doesn't fully address the core of the pro-life argument. I think in a way it misses misses the point, maybe purposefully. So many, I think, of the pro-choice talking points, and we have to speak to why is this necessary, just like John was saying. But so many of those talking points miss the heart of what a lot of people who believe in the sanctity of life are saying. The primary assertion of people who are against abortion isn't that the woman shouldn't have autonomy. Corey, myself, John have no reason to 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 try to strip a woman of 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 that. The core message, the 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 real assertion, the primary assertion that's being made, is that the baby is actually living, that it has human dignity, and therefore isn't just disposable, even in some tough cases. The primary assertion is abortion is ending a life. Now we can argue about when that life begins based on science. And that's a a conversation worth having that needs to continue. But if the baby is alive at some point, it's not just the woman's body that's involved. And every talking point that I hear coming from the left ignores the baby altogether. Unless you're saying it's a clump of cells, they don't say anything about it. But there's another body that must be accounted for when we're talking about this issue. Rhetorically erasing the baby is disingenuous and it's dangerous. Now, we do know, and this is why I push back on conservatives a little bit. This baby is connected to her body. So so that makes it a very complicated moral issue. It's, it's not as easy as just some kid walking down the street. This is connected to her body and connected to her health. But just saying her body, her choice is reductive. And I think it's evasive. So for me, I can say this based on my faith and based on science, this is not just a religious issue, right? Based on my faith and what science is showing us, right? I believe that an unborn baby is alive. And again, not just a disposable clump of cells. And I don't know if y'all have seen ultrasounds, but I don't know how you could look at an ultrasound even in the early second trimester, late first trimester, and just say that's a clump of cells. I could, when I saw my son for the first time, I couldn't just I couldn't look at that and not just sentimentally, but honestly say that was just a conversation. I saw something fighting for its life. And if we can't if we can't have that honest conversation because we're stuck on talking points and cliches, then we're in trouble. Individual people and even individual doctors don't get to decide whether that baby is alive or not based on their own judgment. Now, according to polls, guys. Most people still conclude that the baby is alive at some point. And I think while the left has turned the conversation to be like, well, it's just between her and her doctor. It doesn't matter. You know, most people still say, nah, at some point that 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 baby is alive. Well, if that's the case, then protecting that beating heart, then protecting that that baby that can feel pain and that's science. If that's the case, then that life matters. And I would say to progressives, why do you fight for justice? Because life matters. And so if at any point that's a life, we got to have that conversation because that life has dignity. That life has value. And keeping that human being alive trumps some of the other things that you see these folks bring up on, you know, those folks that are are pro-choice bring up. Right. Some folks are saying, well, how is this going to play politically? Well, once I've made it, once I've. Once I have the belief that that baby's alive, how it plays out politically is not the primary issue that I'm dealing with. Because I believe that's a life, I'm not going to base my opinion on what ideological tribe is on which side or on which side has racists in it. Yes, there are some racists on the pro left on the pro life side, but guess what? I'm not basing my position on them either way, whether they agree with it or whether they disagree with it. No, I cannot guarantee you that conservative politicians are going to do what's right and care for babies and women after birth. I'm not naive enough to make that assumption. But that doesn't change the fact that a life is at stake. I'm not basing my uh, belief on that. 
Yes, people should have provided more for women and children prior to overturning Roe. We can agree on that again. That still doesn't change the fact that the baby exists. And we have to, in our rhetoric, in our talking points, in these cliches, we're not dealing with that. And that's by design. The, the, the conversation has moved away from that by design. Anything from you two on that? Man, you said a lot, but I, I really do believe that we as believers cannot take a monastic approach to this. We cannot sit in the background and not say anything about it. Jesus himself leaned into the complexities of situations that folks were unsure about in his culture. When you look at Matthew 19, when they talk about divorce and remarriage, they come and ask him and he says to them, well, I have a third way for you because there are two camps. There's one camp that says you can divorce your wife if she cooks a bad meal. There's another camp that has this whole list of items that you can divorce a wife for. And Jesus says there's a third way. There's a way that goes back to what God intended marriage to be. And I'm going to lean into that and I expect my followers to do so. And I think that's what the end campaign is about. It's about pointing people away from those polarized opinions to a third way. And we need to be able to adopt the third way around the abortion conversation. If we don't do that, then I fear that the people who are suffering the most will not get the resources that they need. Yeah, that's a word. Um, You know, I was coming out of church um, the other day and right before Roe got overturned and a guy approached me and he had like a pro-life banner and, you know, flyers. And so I'm thinking, okay, you friendly. That's good. So I walk up to him. I get the flyer. You know, I get ready to get in my car. And, and but we had a brief exchange that really concerned me because this brother, when he approached me, he was like, hey, you know, just want to tell you a bit about our organization. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is dope. Da, da, da. I was like, oh, let me tell you about the organization I'm part of and campaign. Um, we also are doing work on this. And, you know, we probably could partner. And then his response to me was, yeah, but do you guys... Percy, do you guys prosecute the women who've murdered their children? Because we can't partner if you don't prosecute the women who murdered their children. And I was like, wow. Like, this is this is not a white evangelical even. This was a brother. It was a black man saying this to me as a black woman coming out the doors of the church. And I was just, I was taken aback, man. I was just like, brother, you, you've lost it. You don't see me standing here as a woman, not knowing my story, not knowing my background and assuming that I'm just in the clear and that you're not talking about prosecuting me. And so I looked at him and I was like, you know, no, we wouldn't partner with you on that part, man. There's a lot of other things in which I think we do align on. I said, but let me just give you a word. And this is no disrespect. I said, there's a lot of women who would agree with you on the pro-life stance, but there are a lot of women who are going to come out this church that you're going to interact with and it would not be kind to them to talk about the prosecution of women like them who have had abortions. Um, there's other ways to go about this. And I just thought it was telling to see, yeah, just that man's heart and that, that guy's approach. It, it just did not seem like he was one who was coming for women in a way or with the child as well. You know, it was just heartbreaking to see that. One of the things that I do want to mention and make sure that I lift up is this idea, especially within the, the Christian community, of the importance of church discipline uh, when it comes to men's role in mm. this conversation. There you go. I know Corey mentioned that the very visible shame that's a present for women as they're pregnant. And even with the conversation you had with that gentleman talking about pro- prosecution for the women, I would venture to say that they wouldn't say anything about the men. And this has been prevalent in evangelical culture. When you think about um, many of the moral failures of leading prominent evangelical voices and the patriarchy that is present in many environments um, from Christianity today to um, the scandal with Mars Hill to Ravi Zacharias, we've had conversations around this. But this idea of church discipline when it comes to men's moral failure, you cannot platform people who have the same moral failure that you shaming women for and then turn around and say you want to prosecute women without understanding that there's a dual role in this process, right? So you cannot hypocritically say that you're going to prosecute women without thinking about the role of men and the role that men play in all of this. I think that's important for us to lift up 
and important for us to think through as we think through these dynamics as well. So important. I mean, I'm 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 glad. I'm really really glad you say that. Sometimes we catch ourselves saying that and not meaning it. I mean it this time. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because we would have been missing something if we if we didn't bring that up. Men got to step up. Not just to take care of their kids, not just to put the woman in a better situation so she feels secure and feels like she has support, but also the brothers out there. And we we know what happens. Pressuring women to get abortions, being irresponsible and then saying, hey, what you going to do? Because I ain't going to do nothing. So you better take care of it. It happens too much. It needs to be talked about. It needs to be talked about in the church. No more bringing the sister up in front of the whole church, humiliating her. And the brother may be sitting, you know, with the deacons and ain't nobody saying nothing. Right. Have to have that conversation. It it has to be real Uh, if we're going to have, number one, the credibility, but the compassion that we need to to kind of fix this. And let me say this again. So many folks, you know, there's so many misconceptions on the Internet about why people are pro-life and why this. Most of the people I know and everybody on here are not pro-life or believe in the sanctity of life because, uh, we have all this faith in every conservative politician to do the right thing. I'm pro-life because, again, those little lives have value regardless of what race or class they're going to become becoming into. Some of the rhetoric that comes from the left, some of the rhetoric that's being repeated by our brothers and sisters sounds like y'all don't think a poor child's life is worth living. Even if that child is going to be poor. Even if that child is going to be suffering to some extent, that life is worth living. And this is things you hear echo with Mother Teresa and folks like that. Be very careful insinuating that a poor child is better off dead. Be very careful before you start making that judgment. We'll be back on Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. It is Justin Gibney and now just... John Richards, our sister, had an appointment to go to, so she she will uh, won't be on this segment. But we've got something very important, still very important, to talk about, and that is the conversation about guns. The crazy part is, John, the U.S. Senate actually did something that very few of us thought they could pull themselves together to do. Uh, and the crazy part about it is nobody's talking about it because of all the things that have happened since then. We had several recent sh- recent shootings. It pressed kind of press them, the legislative bodies to do something. Um, and it's not being mentioned. It's really out of the news right now. And, and understandably so. But that's just crazy that it took this long to get something done. This is the first gun control measure to come out of Congress in nearly three decades, 30 years. It took them 30 years to do something in regard to gun control. So, you know, it's a rare move. 15 Republicans joined Democrats in the Senate to approve a bill which proposes to uh, impose tougher checks on buyers who are under 21 years of age. It's going to inject about 15 billion dollars of federal funding for mental health programs and school security upgrades. Also, there's going to be funding to encourage states to remove guns from red flag owners uh, who are considered a threat. So states don't have to do it. But states will be encouraged and incentivized to remove guns from uh, red flag owners. And it's closing the so-called boyfriend loophole, 
which will prohibit gun sales to those convicted of abusing intimate partners. I would say that this is significant legislation. Nobody's talking about it. One of the reasons nobody's talking about it is there was also a Supreme Court case that overturned a gun law in New York. So the state of New York makes it a crime to possess a firearm without a license, whether inside or outside the home. An individual who wants to carry a firearm in New York outside of the home may attain an unrestricted license to have and carry a concealed weapon, pistol or revolver. If he can prove that a proper cause exists for doing so in New York. So basically, if I want to have a gun in New York, I want to carry it. I have to show that I have proper cause to make this happen. Now, an applicant satisfies the proper cause requirement only if he can demonstrate a special need for protection uh, distinguishable from that of the general community. All right. That's what the ruling was. And so even though like right after we get uh, this, you know, the Senate passes this gun control law, then you have the Supreme Court coming out with this case and it completely overshadowed what's going on. Then you have, you know, Roe versus Wade getting overturned. So nobody is talking about this at all. What are your thoughts on on what's been going on with guns? And you have the 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 Supreme you have the Senate and then you have the what the Supreme Court did. Where does that leave us, John? Yeah, I think it's important that people understand the importance of what happened in the bipartisan legislation. Here's the other piece of that, though. I think it's sad that it takes the death of black and brown people and specifically brown children in an elementary school for our Congress to get together on a bipartisan bill that should have been passed a long time ago. And in addition to that, the compromise didn't allow them to go as far as they could have, uh, even though that there are significant measures in this bill. I think one of the things that excites me the most is the red flag bill uh, laws that are going to be able to come from this, which basically means that anyone who may have mental health challenges or issues that someone who is part of their family or part of their community can petition the court in order to have that firearm removed from their person. There's significant evidence that many of those who have committed mass shootings have had those incidents in the past around mental health and that these laws could have literally saved lives. So I'm grateful for them incentivizing states passing those laws. There are many states that have them in existence now, but I'm hoping that many other states will join that fray. In terms of the Supreme Court case, I do think it flew under the radar because of the road news, but it really is a significant case in terms of the jurisprudence around gun laws. Uh, Clarence Thomas wrote the opinion, wrote the majority opinion. So we heard from Clarence Thomas and he really went through a historical analysis on gun control and gun laws in our country. Obviously, the Second Amendment uh, deals with uh, the right to bear and keep arms, although he didn't address the militia portion of the Second Amendment. He really did hone in on the fact that history and tradition has allowed folks to be able to bear and keep arms. And we don't want to take away that, quote unquote, fundamental right. So what this does is, at least for the New York law and other similarly situated laws, it expands the understanding of what concealed carry looks like in public spaces. And in addition to that, what you're going to see is you will see a swath of litigation coming down the pike based on Thomas's opinion around everything from ghost gun laws, which are guns that are not registered, that are kind of created um, in this small community, and other laws around assault rifles and other uh, issues that are state issues now. But it could have opened the door, Justin, for a whole lot more litigation. And let me tell you, the NRA has a lot of money to go through the process of litigation. So I don't think we're done with this. I think Thomas uh, has set the tone for what could be some gun litigation in the near future, for sure. Yeah, there's going to be some challenges to these restrictions in, in certain states. And I think one of the things that about the New York law was that it was kind of it was kind of saying you have to prove why you should have a gun. And Thomas was saying, no, 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 you have the right to a gun. It should go cut the opposite way. Right. You can't you can't just say you got to prove why you should have a gun and you and the need needs to be more than the general community. So whether you agree with this uh, holding or not, 
it's going to have a significant impact on the restrictions that a lot of more progressive states are trying to place on on guns. And so one thing that it didn't do was in the conversation and the debate on what the restrictions should be and what we should do about guns. I think as we talk about the Senate case, that's I, I think there's more they could have done. If, if, if we you and I were probably writing the law, it may might have been a little bit different than what came out of the Senate. There might have been more restrictions. But you point out that red flag. And I think that is I think to say, hey, this is a person who we in the community or we as a family know should not have any firearms. That's a to me, that's a common sense way to go about it. To me, it's common sense. to, And I think that I think the background check should be more than just people who are. That's another one we probably would have changed. Right. So it should be more than just people who are under 21. But it, that is substantive. Right. And so they, they went and they got something done. This is how things should work. You know, shout out to the 15 Republicans that said, OK, we need to do some. We need to do something about this. We're not just going to be beholden to the NRA or somebody else. Something has to be done. Our constituents are in danger. Let's do something. Is it enough? Most progressives would say no, but it is something. It's a move that shows us there is a chance that these, you know, these folks who don't agree on anything can get something done when the pressure is on them. And I think if nothing else, that's what this says to us. Uh, John? Yeah, but it shouldn't take something as far as a tragedy for something like that to happen. These folks are are elected officials that we expect them to be able to represent us in the halls of Congress. And for them to do this after, in the immediate aftermath of this, although I'm happy and excited for it, I really do want to long for the day where our elected officials actually do the work that we've called them to do in Congress. Um, They have been lobbied for years to be able to pass something like this. And when it comes down to it, it generally takes a tragedy for something like this to happen. Uh, So there are many other bills that are sitting on their desk that may have triggers, have tragedies as triggers. And I don't want that to happen. Like, I really want our elected officials to actually step up to the plate and actually pass legislation that really helps us to be able to be a people who care for whole life. And that that includes gun control litigation legislation. I'm glad you bring that up again, because you don't want the standard to get too low. Right. The sad part is even when we have tragedies, when it comes to police reform and all that stuff, we still don't see nothing done. So it's almost like this shouldn't take a tragedy. You absolutely right about that. But sadly, even when there is tragedy. Many times they still don't, you know, there's still no action. So at least we got it this time. But to your point, I think what you're saying, we're not going to let the standard fall to say when you're forced through through multiple tragedies, then you finally get up and decide you have to do something. It should happen before then, sometimes even in anticipation of things that, you know, that that could happen. So I'm with I'm with you all the way on that. Any, Any last comments on this one? Yeah, I think one of the things about our state of Georgia, you saw that happen with the citizen's arrest law and the hate crimes, uh, hate crimes bill that got passed. Right. And this is something that's near and dear to me. I'm from Brunswick, Georgia, where Ahmaud Arbery was murdered. But it took him losing his life for us to end this antiquated slave patrol um, idea of being able to make a citizen's arrest that was grounded and rooted in being able to bring slaves back to the plantations. So uh, for us to be able to move forward as a culture and as a society, I think we got to be way more pre- proactive than we are reactive. That's why I'm just grateful for the work that we're doing at the end campaign, because I think that we're actually and I mentioned this before, I think it's prophetic work is seeing beyond the now to what the future can be and being able to give people a hope for that future, man, that's going to be helpful for us to move this culture forward. So I want us to look at these um, Supreme court decisions and then think about, okay, what's next? What should we be focusing on next as the next steps to be able to move us towards a more flourishing society? Man, that's, that's such a good point. I think another way to put it is exercising that moral imagination to see past the moment, to not be enslaved to the moment, but to see what should be and what could be in the future. I think that's a perfect place to end it. My brother, John, thank you again uh, for joining us. This won't be your last time, I'm sure. Shout out to my sister, Corey, uh, who had to drop out early, but we appreciate that commentary. The sisters need to know the history. They need to know, you know, as Christians, 
what we're grounded in, what we're rooted in when we look at these issues. So, man, thank you all for uh, listening to us again. I know this was somewhat of a long one, but I think it needed to be. I mean, this is a big issue. We'll be speaking into it as time goes on even more. But as always, Ann Camp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism or progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. Holla. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.